0: If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7, is where we're going to be this morning in our text. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, uh, toward the end of Matthew 7 in verses 24 to 27. Um, We'll get there through Isaiah chapter 9, and you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it here in a moment, but we've been in this series entitled He Is, and we've been looking at Isaiah 9 and the four designations that are given to Jesus by the prophet Isaiah there in that text, and then seeing how Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of those things, that he is mighty God, that he is everlasting Father, that he is Prince of Peace. And this morning we turn to the first of those designations in Isaiah 9-6, when Jesus is spoken of as wonderful Counselor. Isaiah says it this way, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Father and Prince of Peace. Now, this designation of wonderful counselor has to do with the wisdom of Jesus. The wisdom of Jesus. Jesus would be called counselor because, like most counselors, he would counsel, he would teach, he would instruct, he would advise. But he would be called wonderful counselor because, in contrast to all the other counselors of all the other ages and all the other eras and all the other cultures, that Jesus' counsel is wonderful because it's extraordinary. That it surpasses all the counsel and all the teaching and all the the advice of any other person in any other place in any other position from any other culture. And so when Isaiah speaks of Jesus as the wonderful counselor, he's one who would counsel in an extraordinary way. But the crazy thing is that whenever Jesus breaks onto the scene into human history, not everyone saw him this way. In fact, in Mark's gospel, in chapter 6 and verse 1, a part of a story that Mark records goes as follows. He says he went away from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. So they're just kind of taken back and they were, this is what they were saying. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. It's interesting because in Mark's gospel, they took offense at Jesus because they didn't, couldn't reconcile how this one who seemed to be so common could be filled with such wisdom, who could do such mighty works. They didn't recognize that what was standing before them was the one that Isaiah had prophesied about hundreds of years before as the one who would be the wonderful counselor. They couldn't reconcile his common background as a carpenter with the things that they were hearing him teach in the synagogues and the works they were seeing him do in the lives of people. They couldn't reconcile those two things because they considered him to be so common. And listen, there are many in our day who do make the same mistake. the exact same mistake it's often been said that familiarity breeds contempt you've heard that before haven't you familiarity breeds contempt And listen, there are some who have been raised in the church all their lives and they've heard the teachings of Jesus week after week after week. They had faithful parents who opened the Bible with them on a weekly basis, sometimes a daily basis. Maybe they went to private Christian schools for grade school, for middle school, for high school, and then on into college. There have been folks who have sat in Bible studies and Sunday school classes and discipleship groups and accountability triads all of their lives. And for some, what that has done is it's created a deep affection for the teachings of Jesus. And they love them. But for others, that constant contact at times has created not a deep affection, but an apathy. An apathy surrounding the teachings of Jesus. And so regardless of where you are on that scale this morning, walking into this room, whether there's a deep affection for God's Word in your heart, or there's a deep apathy about God's Word in your heart, what I want you to see is that Jesus is no common teacher. He is no common prophet. He is indeed, who Isaiah said He would be, the wonderful counselor. We've seen this in the last several weeks, because we've seen that Jesus is the image of the invisible God who is mighty to save. He's the one whose reign and rule, He would stitch everything back together. Everything that sin had begun to unravel, He would begin to stitch it back together, starting vertically with God, and then internally within our own souls, and then horizontally as we moved out relationally toward other people. Jesus would take the thread of grace and begin to weave everything back together. That Jesus is the one who reveals the everlasting Father to us because He is one with the Father. And that we who are now adopted as His sons and daughters, that we can rejoice in His love. And that we begin to reflect the likeness of the Father progressively over the duration of our lives. That this Jesus who is the wonderful counselor is mighty God, who is is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. And so if He has all these things, and He is, then why shouldn't we listen to Him? Why, Why shouldn't we hear and heed what He has to say? If that's, if that's who Jesus is, then it only makes sense for us to come up underneath his authority and to come underneath his wisdom. And that's what I hope that we will do this morning, so that we would walk in his path of wisdom. Because that's what wisdom is in the Bible. Wisdom in the Bible is not a door that you walk through, but it's a path that you walk down. Listen, some of you are thinking, man, because this is what I thought. I thought by the time I'm 40, I would have a little bit of Wisdom. Forty is barreling down the highway at me at breakneck speed. And I still don't feel like I've accumulated that amount of wisdom. Because I think all my life what I've looked at wisdom as, is a door that you get to one day and you open the door and you walk through the door and all of a sudden I'm wise. But in the Bible, wisdom is not a door that you walk through, but a path that you walk down. So it's this cumulative effect in your life as you wake up day after day and you put one foot in front of the other and you continue to walk down a path. You continue to walk down a path. And there's perhaps no better place in the Bible to find Jesus' path for skillful living than in what is called in Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount the Sermon on the Mount. And so we turn to the end of the Sermon on the Mount this morning in Matthew chapter 7 to consider what it looks like to listen to Jesus' wonderful counsel and to allow it to form and shape our lives. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, as Jesus has been teaching, he this is conclusion to his sermon and listen to what he says. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, And before we get to the thrust of the message, I want to make a couple of observations for you about this text. And the first one is this, is that in this text, what Jesus says that everyone is building on something, everyone is building on something. Both the wise and the foolish. While the wise may be building on rock that is solid and stable and the foolish may be building on sand that is shifting and sinking, every person who has ever lived, including everyone in this room this morning, you are building your life on something. On something. Every one of us is looking to someone to teach us the skill of living. We're looking to someone to show us how to live, what priorities to have, what passions to pursue, how we should conduct ourselves, how we respond in certain circumstances and situations and relationships. Everyone is looking to someone to teach them the skill of living. Everyone. For some of us in the room, we're leaning heavily on ourselves, right? Our own intuitions and our own intellect. What we know, what we've seen, what we've experienced, we're leaning heavily on ourselves while others are leaning heavily on their teachers. Some of you have had relationships with teachers along your journey of life, whether it be in grade school right now, or whether it be in middle school, or whether it be in high school or college, or in the church. You've had teachers whom you've looked to to teach you the skill of living because you've seen the outcome of their lives. So for some of us, we're leaning on ourselves. Others of us are leaning on our teachers. Some in this room are leaning on their parents. And then there's, there's nothing better than having solid influence in your home of men and women, mothers and fathers, who open the Bible and show you the skill of living and how Jesus would instruct us to conduct ourselves in a variety of different scenarios and situations. There's nothing better than having solid parents who are teaching in, as they walk along the path and as they sit down at the table as Deuteronomy speaks of. So some of us are looking to our parents to teach us the skill of living. But at times, even our birth families can teach us some pretty dysfunctional <laughs> ways of living. Some of you are looking to your peers to teach you the skill of living. And, and let, me, let me just tell you, if you're, if, if that for some of you, that's a really scary prospect right now. As you look around and see your peers who, are, who, who you're looking to, to go, how do, I, how do I? what priorities should I have? What should I be pursuing with my life? So some it's themselves, some it's their teachers, some it's their parents, some it's their peers, others might be your employer or employee. Some of you have had relationships with people in the workplace. They they taught you far more than how to build widgets or how to close a sale. And some of you are looking to experts, so-called experts in our culture. You read all kinds of blogs and all kinds of, of articles and you watch all kinds of television shows and documentaries. You go to all kinds of maybe conferences and workshops, looking for people to teach you the skill of living. Everyone is building on something. And everyone is looking to someone to teach them how to live. But also Jesus says here in the text, he says that while everyone is building on something, no one's exempt from anything. Notice the wise and the foolish in the text. Both of them are hit by the same storm. The same rains fall, the same floods rise, the same winds blow, and they beat against that house or against that life. That there is no one who is exempt from anything Jesus teaches us. And a part of the reason that's true is because sin has had all-inclusive effects on humanity. All-inclusive Some of you maybe have traveled a little bit, maybe been to like some all-inclusive resorts, right? Where you show up and you make a a lump sum payment at the desk or at the travel agent or online. And you show up at the resort and it's like, man, you just get to hang out and you get to swim in the pool, eat in the restaurants, go to the fitness center. You get to sail on the catamarans. You get to use the scuba gear. You get to do everything at this all-inclusive resort because everything is included. And listen, sin has had all-inclusive effects on humanity. In other words, every aspect of who we are from our minds and how we think to our hearts and what we desire and long for has been affected or infected by sin. It's been bent and broken. Sin has had all inclusive effects. And so as a result, there's no one in this room who's exempt from the consequences of their own sins. Sometimes we create our own storms, don't we? (laughs) By our own choices and by our own decisions. There's no one in this room who's exempt from the consequences of other people sinning against them. And the pain that that causes at times. Listen, to go further, there's no industry that is exempt from massive job loss. And there is no investment in this life that's exempt from market crashes, that's immune to the market crashing. The market may be on the rise right now, but listen, listen, history tells us that that is a roller coaster. And it's gonna fall again one day, and there's no investment you can make that's exempt or immune from that. There's no family that's immune from the pain of a rebellious child. There's no young couple that's immune from the loss of a child at times. There's no married couple that's exempt from the, the, the betrayal and sting of divorce. And there's no single person in this room or in this community or in this world that's exempt from the pain of loneliness after another failed relationship. See, sin has all-inclusive effects on our life. All-inclusive. And listen, while you may look to another to teach you the skill of living, and you may, you may be able to skate through this life while kind of avoiding major catastrophes, the truth is, is that because of sin, There is not a single person who is immune or exempt from the ultimate consequence of sin, which is called death. Listen, with all the advances in modern science and medicine, the mortality rate is still 100%. One out of one person still dies. And after that, faces judgment. And in fact, I think that's really what Jesus is driving at here when he says, and great was the fall of it, is that in the end, because Jesus has been speaking about judgment previous to this. In the narrow road, there's only one, there's, there's one gate. Everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Right? He's been speaking about judgment. So in the end, will your life stand in the ultimate judgment as you stand in the ultimate storm of God's judgment when you stand before Him? I think it's what Jesus is driving at. And great was the fall of those who built on the sand. But stable and steady were those who built on the rock. And so what we see here in the text is that Everyone is building on something and no one is exempt from anything including death and eventually judgment. And so if you cannot prevent the flood because everyone experiences the rising waters, then how do you prevent the fall, right? That's the question in all of our minds. How do you prevent the great fall even in the end? And this is what Jesus says to us. This is what I want to communicate to you this morning. This is what he says. That you've got to pour peers for your life by your practices. Pour peers for your life by your practices. Here's what I mean by that. There's two ways that you can pour a foundation in North Texas for a home. If you drive around our community, I could probably hit a golf shot from my backyard in any direction and hit a house that's being built right now. I may not be wanting to hit that house, but that's where it's going to go. You can hit a house anywhere. Throw a rock or a baseball from my backyard. You can hit a house that's being built. So there's houses being built all over the place. And there's two ways that you can pour a foundation for those homes. One way is you can take a concrete slab, set up forms, and float a big slab of concrete on top of black mud. (laughs) That's the most common way. That's how my house was built. You can float a slab of concrete on top of this black clay. Right? The, the, the part of the issue with that though at times is that because of the, the, the soil is so unstable. Right? Have you noticed that? You notice in the summer how whenever it gets really hot and dry all these cracks begin to form everywhere because that, all that moisture kind of gets sucked out of the soil by the sun and the heat. And it begins to pull away from the foundation. And then in the winter when all the rains come again Every, that soil swells up and pushes back against that foundation. and So it begins to shift. Every house that has a slab floating on black mud, that foundation's going to move. It's a matter of how much, but it's going to move. The other way to build a foundation, which is more cost prohibitive and time consuming, is before you pour the foundation, you pour piers. You drill down to more stable areas of the soil and you pour a pier down there. Right, Either a steel pier or a concrete pier and, you, and it, it rises to the top and then the slab is poured on top of that and then the piers carry the weight and provide a much more stable platform upon which to build. Those are the two ways. One is more cost effective, one is more cost prohibitive, one is, takes less time, one takes more time. One is more stable than the other. What Jesus is driving at here is that the way that you pour peers to create stability for your life is by your practices. You pour peers by your practices. Look what he says in the text. This is what he says. He says in the text there's a difference between the wise and the foolish person. It's not that one person heard the words of Jesus while another person didn't hear the words of Jesus. But what he says in the text is that one person heard the words of Jesus and did them versus one person who heard the words of Jesus and did not do them. He draws a line between those who hear and obey and the rock, and a line between those who heard and disobeyed and the sand. Those are the connections that Jesus makes in the text. So what Jesus is not doing is he's not saying, hey, there are some people who sit under my teaching, and they hear my teaching, and they're building on the rock, while there are other people who are sitting in the teaching of other authorities, or other prophets, or other philosophers, or other teachers, or other life coaches, right? That's what Some pastors call themselves these days life coaches or other, right, daytime talk show hosts, right? I get my stuff from The View. I just, (laughs) straight up, right? And so, so he's not, he's not comparing those who sit under his teaching and receive his teaching with those who sit under the teaching and receive another person's teaching. He's comparing those who sit under his teaching, who hear his words and act on them versus those who just hear his words and affirm them. See, what Jesus is not saying is that everyone who hears my words and applauds them or accepts them or affirms them or even agrees with them in principle builds his house on the rock. But Jesus is saying everyone who hears my words and acts on them is pouring piers for their life by their practices. They're pouring piers to create stability by their practices. Now listen, so so before you're unclear on, on where we stand as a church, I just want to say this. Is that what Jesus is not saying is that you are saved because of what you do. Right? There's, you can't make that argument by reading the rest of the New Testament or even what Jesus says here. Jesus is not saying, hey, if you jump through all these hoops and obey, observe all these rituals and, and build your life around all these routines, then it will warrant salvation in the eyes of God and he will receive you like you have paid, made a payment to him. There's been a transaction that you put money in your account and so now God must accept you. No, we're saying that you're saved by grace and through faith and in Christ apart from your works. There is nothing that you could do that would merit the mercy of God. But it's freely shed abroad and freely given to any who would trust in and treasure Jesus. But we are not saved by a faith that does not work. An empty, hollow profession where there is not patterns of behavior in your life that change on account of it. In fact, this is so clear in the minds of Jesus' early disciples that it shows up everywhere in their teaching. For instance, in the book of James, in chapter 1, verse 22. James, the brother of Jesus, one of his early apostles, says this in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He says, don't just hear the word and think that because you agree with it or because you affirm it or because you accept it or because you applaud it that you're building your house on the rock. He says, no, don't just be hearers and deceive yourself into thinking that there's vital faith in your life but be doers of the word. Or in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and following where John writes, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. See, there's a difference between acknowledging Jesus' teaching and acting on Jesus' teaching. Jesus says, acknowledging it, you can still be a fool building on the sand that is going to shift and fall But those who have real vital faith are acting on his teaching and ordering their life around it. Let me give you a couple of examples. So you can affirm Jesus teaching all day long and twice on Sunday, every Sunday. (laughs) Jesus teaching on anger and retaliation and reconciliation. You can affirm that all day long, applaud it. Yes, that is the ideal. But then you can walk out of a message out of Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not murder, but I tell you that you're harboring in your heart bitterness and anger and you call someone a fool. It's as good as raising a knife. And if you're at the altar offering your sacrifice and you recognize that your brother has something against you, what do you do? You leave the altar and you go be reconciled to your brother. You can affirm Jesus' teaching on anger and reconciliation all day long and never move towards those with whom there has been division and friction. Because you're not acting on his teaching. Do you see the difference? You can applaud it. Man, that's awesome. And never act on it. And move towards it. Or you can affirm what Jesus says about meekness. That it's the meek that inherit the earth. Those who are gentle and unassuming and humble. It's a part of his kingdom. That even the meek are a part of Jesus' kingdom. Not just the powerful and prestigious and popular and pushy. But even the meek and unassuming and humble and lowly and mild and gentle. You can affirm that one of you walk into a room with high-powered business executives in one corner who are very powerful and prestigious and popular and at times pushy. And in the other corner is a very humble, unassuming, gentle, single mom who's working two jobs at minimum wage to put food on the table. Who do you move toward? You can affirm Jesus' teaching, but is there an action that's flowing out of that. Jesus says pour peers for your life by your practices. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that, you've got you, you, to come to grips with two things. First, you've got to believe that the way of Jesus works, first of all. You've got to believe that the way of Jesus works, that his wisdom, that his teaching, that his counsel, that it is useful for your life. If you're going to pour peers for your life by your practices and by practicing Jesus' counsel, you've got to believe there's no one who's wiser than he is. There's no one who has more information than he does on a particular subject. There's no one who's smarter than Jesus, that he knows what he's talking about. Because you only, you and I, we only trust those individuals who we believe are competent to lead us. Right? For instance, I hope you don't take offense, but for instance, no one's going to roll out of here on January 1 and go, I've got to get in shape. Right? Right? And so they're going to go out and they're going to find somebody who is 300 pounds overweight, who shows up to every one of their training sessions with a Snickers bar and a six-pack of Coke to be their personal trainer to get them into shape, right? You're not going to do that. Why? Because you want somebody who has an expertise in fitness to teach you how to be fit. By all accounts, that individual probably doesn't have a whole lot of expertise in fitness, in the same way that you wouldn't come to me and hire me to tutor your child in math. That's, that's, that's bad news for you, right? I may know a little bit about a little bit, but I know nothing when it comes to math. Listen, I'm good to about a third grade level, which is good because where my son is right now. And I, and I was good so long as they were just numbers, but when they started adding letters, it's like, you can't fool me. You can add letters. <laughs> like, you don't want me tutoring your children t- because I don't have expertise in that. There are people who are a whole lot smarter mathematicians than I am. And that's who you'd want to go to to seek counsel. So, you and I will trust individuals we consider to be competent to lead us and have expertise. And listen, if you're going to build your life on the teachings and counsel of Jesus, you must believe that there is no one who is smarter than he is. No one who is more brilliant than he is. No one who has more information on the way life is supposed to work than he does. You've got to believe that the way of Jesus, it works. A man by the name of Dallas Willard said it this way He said, Our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than the recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It is possible to trust Jesus, or it's not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. We cannot pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with real life matters we suspect might defeat his knowledge or abilities. And can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not also smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, Willard says, how could he be what we take him to be in all other respects and not be best informed? And the most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived. Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice, he's brilliant. He always has the best information on everything and certainly on the things that matter most in human life. See, the fact that Jesus is divine, he knows exactly how you and I were designed. He is the one through whom God made all things, including you and including me, so he knows exactly how we were designed to work. Do you believe that Jesus has the best information, that Jesus is the most brilliant when it comes to marriage? Not secular psychology. Do you believe that Jesus is brilliant in terms of how you manage your money? Not the dudes on CNN. Do you believe that Jesus has the best information on being rid of anxiety and trusting with a very childlike faith for God's provision, like He does for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field? Do you believe that Jesus has the best information when it comes to purity and struggles with lust? And the extremes at which he calls us to take it, of cutting off our hands and gouging out our eyes and separating ourselves from those things that would pollute our hearts or inflame the pollution that's already there by nature. Do you believe he has the best teaching on everything, including the things that matter most in your life? Do you believe that he has knowledge, the most knowledge, the best knowledge about ultimate spiritual realities and about the everyday realities of parenthood? You've got to believe that the way of Jesus works. Let me tell you what stands in the way from you and I believing that most days. What stands in the way from you and I believing that most days is the fact that our desires, our bent desires by sin, apart from God's grace, will always trump God's design. Our desires will trump God's design. Because even though we are intellectual beings and thinking beings, we are also feeling beings. You know that? And what we want, what we desire and long for, will always trump even the best things that we know. Let me give you an illustration. For the sake of complete transparency. A couple of weeks ago, I was at Costco just kind of perusing around the aisles, picking up some food for the family. Um, and, you know, making the bulk run for the month and grabbing things that we could use over the course of those 30 days. And just for the sheer sake of confession, let me just go ahead and acknowledge to you, for the last five years, there's been a deep desire within my heart for a new television. <laughs> right? I, I've wanted to move from like a 37 inch to a 50 or a 55. And so as I, you can't walk into Costco without them being, boom, right there in your face, right? There they are. And so I walk down the television aisle and I'm just kind of perusing and I go, it was like leading up to Black Friday. I was thinking, man, the prices on these televisions, I've never seen them this low before. This is amazing. It's a godsend. God sent me to Costco today for food so I could walk by these televisions and see the prices on them. And so I began to walk around Costco and fill the cart with everything. In fact, I went back. Just utter full transparency. I went back and got like the big cart that a TV would fit on, just in case. So I began to load all the stuff, all the groceries on the cart. And so I'm walking around Costco and I pick out my, take out my phone and I text my wife. You laughing because you know this is going. I text my wife. I said, "Baby, what would you think about watching a movie tonight or the game later today on this on a, on a new like 50 inch screen?" And then the little dots start. <laughs> On the text message on my phone, and I'm just waiting, anticipating. Like, I could taste it, right? I could envision the 50 inch where it would go, watching the game, watching movies. And then, whoop, here comes the text. And at this point, I would just back away from utter transparency um, because there was, there, was, there was stuff about bloodshed and that kind of stuff in the text message. And so I. I uh, I realized at that moment that no matter how badly I wanted that new television, what I wanted more than that was a place to sleep that night. (laughs) You see, what we want most always wins the day. I wanted that television. What I wanted more was harmony in my home. (laughs) That's what I wanted more than the television. See, what you want always trumps what you know. And so you've got to believe that Jesus' way works, but not only do you have to believe that it works, and this is what leads us to this next point, you also have to believe that it's wonderful. That the way of Jesus is wonderful. That not only is it useful, but it is beautiful. That it creates a beauty of life. Because that would awaken new desires in your heart as God begins to bring about this internal transformation. If you're going to pour peers for your life on on the practices that Jesus instructs us with, then you've got to not only believe that it works, but that it's wonderful, that it's beautiful, that it's captivating for you in your mind and in your heart. Because of what Jesus is calling us to here, listen, the reason that it's beautiful, the reason that it's wonderful, is because what Jesus is calling us to here is not mere shallow external conformity to a list of rules and regulations. Listen, what Jesus is talking about here is not a, not a Photoshop beauty, right? You know what Photoshop beauty is? All those ads that you see on television and all those ads that you see in print and online, they've all been airbrushed and touched up and toned out, right? They've all had all kinds of work done to them externally, artificially, to project this image of beauty. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about an external conformity to regulations that would be beautiful. What he's talking about, if you go back into the Sermon on the Mount over and over again in Matthew 5, he has said, you have heard that it was said. You shall not murder. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said. But I tell you. In other words, Jesus moves us from the letter of the law to the heart of the law. And he's saying it's not just about looking really good on the outside. Because looking really good on the outside, you can still look really good on the outside and inside, Jesus says later in Matthew's Gospel. It can be like a, a, a really nice polished piece of marble on the inside. is nothing but bones of dead men. But the beauty that Jesus is speaking of is the beauty of a life that is being lived from the inside out. As the heart's being renewed, as the heart's being changed, as the heart's being transformed, as the heart's being awakened to the beauty of God. And then it's flowing downstream into the actions and behaviors and patterns of life. And it creates a life that is beautiful. There's a beauty to God's design, isn't there? You know there is. You know there's a beauty that is magnificent. Magnificent about a life that's, that's more than behavioral modification on the outside. You know that there is because you've seen it. You know where you've seen it? You've seen it in the eyes of a couple in their 80s who's been married for 50 years and they're celebrating covenantal faithfulness for decade after decade after decade. Listen, externally, there may not be a whole lot left that's attractive about them, but you see it in their eyes they've been through ups and downs and peaks and valleys and they've been through deep heartache and great joys together and there's been covenantal faithfulness they have not treated each other as a commodity to be disposed of or traded in for a sleeker model with more curves that's is, that's is beautiful you've seen it in the lives of individuals like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who were missionaries to South America in the 1900s, mid-1900s, and Jim Elliot is cited as saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So you've seen it in the life of those who lay down their lives and goods for the sake of something and someone other than themselves. You've seen it in the life of individuals who are free from anxiety because they trust that God's going to provide for them. You've seen it in the lives of those whose, whose Christianity is more than external modification, but it's actual internal transformation. They're not taking apples and trying to duct tape them to an oak tree. <laughs> but there are roots that are being set down deep in their hearts. And that, the, that apple tree is growing and flourishing and blossoming and putting out fruit. There's a beauty to that that leads us to a position where we don't judge others un- harshly and uncritically without looking at ourselves and seeing the planks in our own eyes first and knowing the condition of our own hearts. There's a beauty to that kind of life, isn't there? There's an attractive quality about it. So you've got to believe the way of Jesus works and you also have to believe that the way of Jesus is wonderful. It's wonderful. But how does this flesh itself out practically? I'm going to give you one thing as we close this morning. And that's this. If you're going to pour peers for your life on your practices, then where do you start? You start with what you know. You start with what you know. See, for some of us in this room, as we think about wisdom being applied knowledge, some of us have a great deal of knowledge that we have not yet acted on in our lives. We have not yet acted on it. See, do do you know someone right now who has something against you? Who maybe you have offended or wounded? How do you start with what you know? Well, you start with what you know by going to them. Not not 10 minutes from now when the service is over, but maybe even right now. Like that's, that's, that's a little radical. Right now, you would stand up and walk out and you would go and be reconciled to your brother. (laughs) That you leave your gift at the altar and that you go and be reconciled to your... Will you act on that? Start with what you know. Some of you right now, you know that all of your life has been consumed by greed. And that you've only been looking out for what's in it for you. And so you've been acquiring and attaining and building and massing up quantities of possessions without ever thinking about distributing some of what God has given to you to the poor, to mercy ministry, and to the church, to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. So start with what you know, and you begin to give now, not three months from now. Begin to give today, or tomorrow, or this week. Not next year sometime. You start with what you know. Do you know that right now, you're being eaten alive by anxiety? It's, It's Christmas time. Who isn't? And so, what do you do when you walk out of this room? You look up to the skies. It's a little cold out there. You might not see many today. You look up to the skies and you see the birds flying above. And you preach to yourself and you say, God feeds them. And you drive by the neighborhoods and you see pansies planted in people's flower beds. And you say, God clothes those vibrant flowers. How much more so will He feed and clothe me? And you preach to yourself day after day. Some of you right now are being eaten alive by lust. And Jesus would say, shut down your Instagram account. Shut down your Snapchat account. Shut down your Twitter account. Shut down your access, unbridled access to the internet. Cut it off. Start with what you know. And what you do is you begin to put one foot in front of the other day after day walking down the path of Jesus' wisdom. And as you start with what you know, he will show you what step is next. He is a wonderful counselor. And if you'll pour piers for your life on his practices in this life, while your windows may rattle they will not be shattered. And in the life to come, there will be a, you will have lived a life with a vibrant faith of internal change and transformation. And you will stand before God and in the storm of his judgment, you will sing, Jesus paid it all. And so all to him I owed. And I put my foot on his path of wisdom, and I walked the days of my life. For some of you, that first step this morning is to trust him. Some of you never have. Maybe you're one of those who's kind of been in church all of your life and you've heard the teachings of Jesus and you've, man, you've applauded and you've affirmed, but you've never acted. You've never crossed the line of faith. If that's you this morning, I want you to know that he stands with arms wide open, ready to receive you. you would come in repentance. And if that's you, I would love to visit with you as our service concludes here in a moment. I'm gonna pray for us. band's gonna come, they're gonna lead us in a song as we lift our voices and hearts together to this Jesus who is a wonderful counselor, who is better than everything and anyone. Would you pray with me? Father, we come today and I pray, God, that your, your grace would be sufficient for us in our weakness, your power would be perfected in us, God, we are unable and incapable on our own by our own efforts of stepping toward the path of your wisdom, but God, I pray that you would change our hearts and our desires, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come to abide and he would begin to bear his fruit, and that we would show ourselves to be in him because we're keeping his commandments and walking in the light. And that we would stand before You one day, not saying, Lord, Lord. Didn't we prophesy in Your name? Didn't we do miracles in Your name? Didn't we drive out demons in Your name? And that we would not hear the word, depart from me for I never knew You. But we would hear, welcome, You who have done the will of my Father. Not in an external way way that we think that we're earning something but in a very with a life that's beautiful that's being molded from the inside out god would you help us today start with what we know to start with what we know and take those steps that you've called us to to begin walking in the wisdom and the path of your son we pray this in jesus name